Hello and welcome to the Food Navigator podcast, your deep dive into the issues shaping the future of food. I'm Food Navigator journalist Flora Southey, and in this episode, we're pulling both sides of a long-fought debate into the ring. In one corner, organics. Uh, we love it because we think it brings together what's good for people and what's good for the planet, what's good in the short term and what's good in the long term. And in the other corner, GMOs. Well, obviously, it can help to produce more food and it can help to produce food in, in a more environmentally friendly and sustainable way. Organics and GM take their place at the opposite ends of the spectrum. In the consumer's eye, organic benefits from somewhat of a health and sustainability halo. GMOs do not have the same glowing reputation amongst shoppers. And actually, you're much more likely to spot a logo stressing a product is GMO-free rather than the inverse when walking down the supermarket aisle. So why are consumers concerned? Well, first of all, we have to obviously see that most people don't know much about genetic modification, genetic engineering, neither the new forms nor the, the older forms. That's Martin Keim there, director of the Center for Development Research at Germany's University of Bonn. And yes, an advocate for GM. Uh, and it sounds like it's it's something very unnatural. And uh, well, people, uh, especially when it comes to food, certainly have a preference for something that's natural. And there's something uh, that sounds to them uh, so unnatural. Then uh, there's fears uh, that there may be new types of risks for uh, either human health or the environment. Uh, and that's obviously what's driving fears and concerns. But once you understand more and all the many, many years of research uh, that have been done are telling us that genetic engineering forms of plant breeding are in no way more risky than traditional forms of plant breeding. And that's the message uh, and the evidence that increasingly comes out of science. But it's a message uh, that's not yet uh, widely seen and understood uh, in the public that has lived now for 20 years and more uh, with a notion, well, perhaps uh, that's something dangerous. Okay, let's back it up, because unless you're in the know, references to traditional forms of plant breeding and new forms of plant breeding might be going over your head. Let's start from the top. GM. GM, the letters stand for genetic modification and uh, can be used in the medical science. It can be used in the plant science. Uh, We are here primarily talking about plant science, and uh, it refers to the targeted improvement uh, of specific crop traits using tools of genetic engineering. And in genetic engineering, um, that's a field uh, that has really seen lots of innovations in the last 20, 30 years. Um, and we differentiate uh, nowadays between old forms of genetic engineering and new forms of genetic engineering. And the old forms have been used in plants uh, since the 1980s. The first plants uh, were then commercially grown um, since the 1990s. And these old forms involve the transfer of genes from one organism to another. And that happens often across species boundaries. So for instance, you could isolate a gene from a bacterium 
and transfer that to maize or transfer that uh, to any other plant. And uh, the result is what we call a transgenic plant that carries one or sometimes also more genes uh, from other organisms. And these genes are then coding for specific crop traits that are desirable that could be, for instance, insect resistance or fungal resistance or something like this. The new forms of genetic engineering are also referred to as gene editing. And these are uh, newer in 2020, the two inventors of the so-called CRISPR-Cas system, which is the most popular gene editing tool, were awarded uh, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. And these tools don't transfer genes. Uh, they're actually much more precise and they only change certain genetic sequences, very small sequences uh, within the plant genome. Um, and this is what we call point mutations. So the result is a plant that has a point mutation and is not carrying a foreign gene from another organism. And uh, these point mutations can be also very useful for certain desirable crop traits. And, and that's the uh, things that we refer to as gene editing. It's time to bring in another perspective. Let's hear from a food brand championing organic. European food maker Ecotone, formerly known as Wessonen, boasts a number of organic brands within its stable. If you've ever tried Bjorg plant-based alternatives or Clipper teas, whole earth peanut butter or callow rice cakes, then it's likely you've consumed an Ecotone product. Well, we champion organic because we believe it's the most complete and the most sustainable uh, overall and all-round certification scheme that exists for food. That's Klaus Arts, Chief Sustainability and Marketing Officer at Ecotone. And what we love specifically about it is that I think it really goes to the core of what's needed to protect and enhance biodiversity, which is the, the central uh, purpose that we committed ourselves to. By 2030, Ecotone has committed to further grow the share of its turnover of organic products to 90%. Given that pledge, it's unsurprising that Ecotone has a non-GMO policy. So what most worries the company about GMOs? Well, the main concern that we have about it is, uh, firstly, I think it, it's supporting a type of agriculture that it's is fundamentally at odds with what we believe is the right for the future, Okay, because it's one that's predicated on increasing uh, short-term yields, uh, more effectively exploiting uh, the land and the soil without really looking into concerns of longer-term sustainability, external costs, uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, so that would be the, the, the main concern. Uh, second concern is we believe, you know, the consumer and the way that we experience them uh, in Europe, but also in you know, closer to our business is not really comfortable with the idea of GMO at all. That might be quite different in other parts of the world. Uh, and then finally, yes, once you get to it, uh, there could be there could be some safety concerns, but that's not really at the heart of our consideration about GM. The GMO non-GMO debate is certainly polarizing, but both sides appear to be arguing their case for the same goal: long-term environmental sustainability we are moving into a different industry. We are going to have a higher population which are growing. We have to think about the future, especially the future of the feeding population of something that is healthy, but also we have to save our environment. Food scientist Mawad Abushakadam is founder and CEO of Dutch ingredients company Foodative. 
as I truly believe sustainability and our environment is my top priority, but also delivering food that is nutritious. GM modified ingredients as well, GMO modified crops in general, will actually help us to be able to do the production and increase actually those lands field. I know we are actually will be able to save the forest and the wildlife. If we're able to focus on a product that have a higher yield and actually we can maintain the core production always stay the same. We are also living in an, in an environment where a global warming is happening and actually the, the temperature changing dramatically. And that is affecting a lot the, the crop. We are actually faced also with the ability of unstable weather conditions. And that's really helped us to actually grow better vegetables and grow better crops, but also actually deliver the nutritional values that actually everybody needs. Foodative is fermenting DNA-modified yeast to recreate the milk protein casein without the cow. This is a pretty solid example of genetic modification encouraging innovation in food. It does encourage a lot because it's opening a lot of other spaces in which we can tackle such new challenges. Specifically, if we're talking about challenges in food production, when we're talking about delivering same taste from animal to a plant-based, we are moving towards a plant-based ingredients and we're moving towards more vegan and understanding actually the impact of plant-based. This is really going to impact the innovation, especially when it comes to startup uh, the startup always have the fear of getting the perfect recipe. And the science now is really allow us also, especially using biotechnology science, to get those uh, ingredients and get those functionalities correctly. Foodative is fermenting its genetically modified yeast in bioreactors. Looking at it from a purely production perspective, there is little risk of cross-contamination. The yeast isn't going to float with the wind into a neighbouring crop, for example. But the story can be different out in the fields. In Spain, the cultivation of GM crops is authorised, meaning that organic and GM do coexist there. So, so can organic and GM happily coexist? Eric Gall, Deputy Director of IFOAM Organics Europe, isn't so sure. Spain is a case in point. It's uh, one of the only places where GM crops are grown in Europe. And we know from the Spanish example and from the regions like Aragon, where BT maize has been grown, that organic producers had to give up uh, the production of organic maize. Because even when contamination is not systemic, you know that you always have a risk of contamination. And the result is that uh, the companies which were buying the maize from the farmers uh, stop buying from them because they, they couldn't take the risk of finding contamination, you know, at the processing stage in the maize that they bought from the farmers. So organic farmers lost markets. They face a risk of uh, losing uh, uh, reputation. And the measures that they have to take to mitigate the risk of contamination entails increased costs uh, for them. Uh, you have increased costs at the level of seed production, at the farm level, at the level of processing as well, uh, due to the increased cleaning, due to the routine testing that you, you have to do. So there is no such things as coexistence between organic and GM crops. That said, you know, the level of risk of contamination depends precisely on the measures which are taken at the policy level to try and mitigate this contamination risk. So that's why we believe that it's very important that the traceability and labeling system 
for GM crops is maintained and will remain um, implemented for the new genetic engineering techniques. Because to be very clear, the capacity of both organic and conventional producers to guarantee to their customers and to consumers that no GMOs has been used in their production process depends on the mandatory traceability and labeling system uh, established at the EU level. And uh, if this is maintained also for the crops made with genome editing, there will always be cases of contamination, but at least we will have a chance to, you know, to maintain a, a reasonable level of segregation between uh, organic and GM crops. Conversely, Bonn University scientist Martin Keim, who we heard from earlier, believes there are ways to avoid cross-contamination. Organic uh, is defined by humans and humans in Europe. The organic associations have defined organic uh, such that they don't allow any genetic modification or genetically modified crop plants. And that means we need a complete separation of fields and of supply chains and we also need to avoid cross-pollination, which can happen. I mean, pollen flows with the wind and uh, and therefore uh, cross-pollination can happen and we need to avoid that. And that can only be avoided uh, when you have sufficient distances between fields uh, that are grown with genetically modified plants and organic fields. And it can be managed, but it certainly requires sufficient distances and uh, so on and so forth. But let's throw a curveball. What about if we didn't view it as contamination at all? Could there be a third category? GMO, organic, and uh, GMOganic? In my eye, the definition of organic may uh, potentially also be changed because uh, organic wants to be good for the environment uh, and wants to reduce the use of chemical inputs. And if you can breed plants that are more resistant to pests and diseases so that they don't need chemical pesticides, then actually that would be a perfect match with uh, organic methods. So I think we need to think a little bit broader than, than just about definitions as they were defined many, many decades ago and, and think about how can we make agriculture more environmentally friendly and in my eyes that could very well work uh, using organic methods in combination uh, with uh, gene editing tools. The ultimate success of genetically modified or organically grown food hinges on consumer acceptance in the marketplace. Organic, Ecotone's Klaus Arntz tells us, is gaining in popularity, with the coronavirus pandemic exaggerating the trend. The um, demand of organic food for organic food has, let's say, consistently been growing at a rate of somewhere between 5 and 10% every single year. Uh, over the last 20, 30 years. So we've observed that the market for organic food in Europe has pretty much doubled every 10 years. Uh, in the short term, if you look at the last few years, which of course have been rather turbulent for many of us, uh, we've seen that organic demand has been almost crazy in 2020 uh, and sort of rebalanced a little bit in the course of 21. But in the in the course of these two years, we've still in many markets seen growth levels of, you know, strong double digit, you know, Germany at the top with over 20% growth over these two years, but even the UK, France growth levels around 15%. And that 
might to some extent also be about the consumer reflecting on the importance of healthy, sustainable food in times when yeah, we were all affected by the COVID pandemic, but also more recently things such as COP. Clearly, the, the need for healthy and sustainable food is maybe becoming more obvious to more people. And that's what's driving them to organic. So consumer demand for organics is there. And on the other side of the coin, is distaste for genetically modified ingredients really as strong as all that? Eric Gall from Organic Food and Farming Organization, IFOAM, is convinced it is. Opinion polls along the last 25 years since GM crops were first introduced uh, on the European market in 96 show a consistent opposition of a majority of European consumers to GMOs. And some studies have even shown that the more consumers know about genetic engineering and the more opposed they are to it. And it's true in all European countries as well. And this is why the food market is closed to GMOs in Europe, not because of regulations, because as you know, you have more than 100 uh, GM events authorized for uh, placing on the market for food or feed in Europe. But you hardly find any food companies willing to take the risk to use GMOs in their product and be labeled as containing GMOs because of this strong consumer opposition. So we do not expect this to change. And to be very clear, there is no such thing as a demand from consumers for GM crops, simply because GM crops have had no benefits for consumers. They even had no benefits for farmers in Europe because they are imported through animal feed, and you might think that in theory they could have a benefit, you know, for the farmers growing the feed in South America, but they have no benefits in themselves for, for the farmers using feed for their uh, animals. So, from what we see, consumers remain strongly opposed to the use of genetic engineering in food, and we know as well from consumer polls that one of the strong reasons why consumers choose to buy organic products is also because of their uh, GM-free status and the fact that no genetic engineering has been used in the organic production process. So that's why it's very important that uh, policies allow organic producers and processors to still be able to guarantee that no GMOs have been used in the organic production process for consumers. When you ask consumers and citizens, then you regularly get a large majority uh, who is against genetic engineering in agriculture. That's Martine again from the University of Bonn. So far, in agreement, but not for long. But that's largely building on prejudices and the, the uh, misinformation that's partly out there. So people not really knowing sufficiently uh, about the safety uh, and the benefits uh, of these types of uh, GM crop plants. Organic farming is something that's very popular uh, among consumers in particular. I mean, uh, organic farming uh, is widely seen as better for health, better for the environment, uh, better for almost everything. Uh, it's not like this in reality, but that's the perception that many have. And it's so popular that um, when you look at the political goals uh, for uh, farming in, in Europe, uh, you see that politicians are setting goals to uh, drive up uh, the organic area uh, from 
currently 7-8% in Europe to the target of 25% by 2030. Our German government, uh, the new government uh, that just uh, um, started a, a few days ago, has the goal of even driving it up to 30% by 2030. And it's the main reason is politicians know it's so popular uh, among uh, citizens to do that, uh, that they're just taking that. I think the organic methods have an important role to play, but their big disadvantage is uh, that they have lower yields uh, than other forms of agriculture. And that means uh, on a planet uh, where demand for food is rising, you would need more area in total to produce that with organic methods alone. Um, and, uh, and that would mean we would have to deforest more land. We would have to convert more natural land uh, into cropland uh, on, a, on a global basis. And that's bad for biodiversity. That's bad for the climate. So we need to find ways of doing it environmentally friendly, but at the same time uh, have good yields uh, on those areas that we use for farming. Only then uh, can we really have sustainable forms of uh, agriculture and food systems. Foodative is on a mission to change consumer perceptions of GMOs, and Moad is optimistic it can be done. I am completely positive that we will, and I'm completely positive because we're seeing it more and more. A lot of companies are advocating for GMO food. A lot of companies are actually talking about why should we move forward to it. And most importantly, using actually our sustainability goals for the European Union right now, the need for GMO food will definitely be in top priority because it can really help sustainability. It can really help to save more wild field and actually really allows the environment to be more sustainable. But most importantly, I think people as end consumption, the more they can understand, the more they have information and the more they have data to show them what is actually GMO will help. And I think doing this today, this podcast is really as a great step forward. And it showed us that, you know, we are improving. We are going to the better step for, for European Union. The cultivation of GM crops is largely banned in European member states, with the exception of Spain, Portugal, the Czech Republic, Romania and Slovakia. The GMO regulatory landscape, however, is not the same the world over. Much more is grown in the US, Brazil, Argentina, India and Canada. For some context, Spain grows the most GM crops in Europe. Around 100,000 hectares is dedicated to its cultivation. In the US, that figure is more than 70 million hectares. The USDA has clearly stated that new gene editing techniques are not considered GMO. In Europe, the opposite is true. Gene editing, judged to come under GMO regulation by the European Court of Justice in 2018, is banned across the block. This begs the question, what does the future of EU GMO regulation hold? I mean, it's all related to the genetic engineering law that we have in Europe. And uh, the law is now 20 years old, uh, and it refers to those old forms of genetic engineering, those so-called transgenic crops. Currently, we are in a situation where also the new forms of genetic engineering are falling under this law, but that's under debate. Uh, and I don't believe that we will see in the near future any changes for the old transgenic crops. 
But I am hopeful and optimistic that uh, we may gradually see uh, some legal changes uh, that will make it uh, much more science-based and uh, and uh, efficient uh, for the gene-edited crops, those new forms of uh, genetic engineering. And those would then be able to move forward. Uh, and, uh, and that's something that I do see political debates uh, that are at least showing that, well, perhaps we should make that separation between old and new forms. At the same time, the European Commission's farm-to-fork strategy, which falls under its Green Deal, clearly makes a commitment to target at least 25% agricultural land under organic farming by 2030. Coming from a current standpoint of just 8.5%, the Commission already has its work cut out for it. A newfound support of GM could be perceived by some in opposition to the pledge. Ecotone's sustainability chief isn't expecting much to change in the GM regulatory landscape. You know, European Commission is in general supportive of uh, organic agriculture. Uh, so they are. Their vision is that you know, 30% of food production by 2030, I think, should be should be organic, uh, and that is also pa- part of the overall farm to fork strategy. If I look at the daily implications of you know how it you know affects or supports our business, I think I I, I wish the support could even be a big you know greater you know every day, but generally speaking, I don't necessarily personally expect them to become more lenient of, uh, of of GM, you know, because it seems to again be at odds with, you know, what they're publishing to be their, their longer term vision for food. Current EU regulation, coupled with consumer perception of GMOs, means that food tech innovation based on this technology is largely happening elsewhere. Or if GM-based products are being developed in Europe, it's likely they'll have to commercialise in other geographies. We asked Foodative's founder whether this would be the case for the startup's milk protein alternative. Sadly, yes. We've really struggled when it comes to even talking about this topic because, of course, we have to first create way more consumer awareness and create more clear marketing, allowing people to understand what is actually the GMO. But, of course, we always have to follow the FSA regulation. The FSA regulation is really strict in reference to marketing and actually taking a product like this to the to the market, we have to produce and use a lot of clinical studies to show the assessment of actually this product, it's safe for human consumption. Don't get me wrong, I think it's amazing how EPSA is actually achieving this and needing to assure food safety, but however, also at the same time, as a startup, we really cannot afford to do the same intense research that they require. And then sadly enough, FDA offers an open guide to make it a bit easier to do such an such an entry to the market with such a product with easier requirement when it comes to the scientific research. Well, we've come to the end of the round. The fight was just a bit too close to call. But I'll be watching any changes in regulation or indeed any new GM organic agricultural methods with keen interest. Thank you for listening to the Food Navigator podcast. Join us next time.